Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. consider myself to be a better Catholic apologist than any Catholic apologist on any other show on Blog Talk Radio. Now, that may sound like bragging, maybe it is, but I feel it to be the truth. However, here at the Four Persons, I am proud to say that I am at least Fourth in the rankings here at the four persons. Um, I do not claim for one second to put myself in the same league as the top three apologists that we have here. And I just love listening to these three guys and I learned so much from them. And um, I'm just in awe to be working with them. And not only are they all three just tremendous apologists, tremendously knowledgeable people, but the three of the nicest, most decent human beings that you will ever meet in in your life. And I'm just going to say that I'm so proud to call them my friends. And let me welcome one of the heads of the three-headed monster, Luke. How are you doing tonight? 
Jesus, you have this rough and tumble of, uh, you know, a retired lieutenant in tears here, John. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, I mean that from my heart. I'm so um, honored to call you my friend. Um, you not only have, have uh, helped my knowledge in the faith, but uh, there's been more than a couple of times that you kind of talked me off the emotional ledge uh, and kind of steered me in the in the right path when my uh, emotions were getting the best of me as they are what to do from time to time. And uh, <laughs> I have thoroughly enjoyed this series that we that we started Labor Day weekend, and um, it, it's just amazing how both of us have grown as we've moved through this 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 gospel and both of us have come to realize that it just we knew it was deep we knew it was rich but i think both of us are amazed at just how deep and rich it is it's just we both are i think a little surprised at how much we ourselves have learned as we've gone through this this journey is that fair to say uh, it, it's a bottomless well but you know, it's it's a love story between an imperfect bride and a perfect groom. And in the way these words develop in the mind, like we talked about before, I don't even think the apostles knew how much they were putting into these things. It was the Holy Spirit guiding them. And so the depth that they put into these, uh, uh, these uh, gospels is just... Uh, it's it, it could only be a put there by God, right? Now tonight we're getting into chapters twenty three and twenty four, which is really interesting because there has been an, an entire ideology born out of the twentieth century that must have just ignored these two chapters, <laughs> and that and the, and that's this uh, this idea of dispensationalism, this idea of uh, of, of Zionism. Now, I, you know, we love the Jewish people, and I certainly don't uh, approve of anti-Semitism or anything like that. Uh, and yet, the Bible is clear that the Old Covenant has moved on to the New Covenant. Um, and the people of the Old Covenant uh, had their shot, and in many ways they blew it. They just blew it. And um, chapters 23 and 24 really deal with the coming storm that the people were not ready for. They were, they were, there were two coming storms that the people were not ready for. One was the death of Jesus. They were not ready for that. And the second was the calamity that came 37 years later. And... Jesus is preparing them for for it, but they still weren't weren't ready for it, and um, and that's what twenty three and twenty four get into, and it's it's some really deep and powerful stuff. Uh, so, Luke, why don't you take it away? Let's get right into it. Well, what would you think about doing another review here? Because I know people are are, are if they're listening to tapes, they're probably coming in in, the, in different chapters and things. Yeah, I think that would be that would be helpful. 
uh, to, to start off, you know, kind of a, a review to bring us up to where we are now. And then, you know, people will kind of understand where Jesus is going, stepping forward. That's a good idea. So let's go back to Abraham and Isaac and uh, Abraham's covenant with God. And covenant, uh, the word covenant comes from an ancient Semitic word, bereit. Uh, uh, and a lot of people think it's simply like a contract. But it's more of a bonding relationship where we hear these words, I will be your God and you will be my people. Well, this is a covenant relationship with God. And in this covenant, it's I will be yours and you will be mine. And what's fascinating is that when covenants were made, uh, the bonding of the covenant actually had to deal with uh, oftentimes blood and a meal. So uh, in a, a covenant between the two individuals, uh, let's say it was a covenant of uh, establishing a certain area of land, and uh, one, one person would take one parcel, another person would take another parcel, and they would set an oath to be neighbors, and they would create uh, a blood bond where one person would cut his arm, another person would cut his arm, and they would attach the uh, arms together to make this blood bond. And in the sign of the blood is also a sign of union. And so uh, in addition to this, there are covenant meals. And in the Old Testament, what do we see? We see the meals with God. So I want you to keep this in mind as we come into these final chapters, this covenant relationship. And I want you to think about another word, promise. Abraham had his covenant with God. And in the promise, God told Abraham that he would make his, uh, his seed as numerous as the stars. Of course, this is a little bit hyperbole here. But uh, now, and, are you suggesting that Jesus used hyperbole? Or are you? Suggesting, <laughs> go ahead. We're going to go into that again too. On, in this yes, please, too. please continue. <laughs> <laughs> and covenant uh, with Abraham was secured in the word Hesed, and Hesed means steadfast love. So for God's love for Abraham kept this covenant going all the way through up to Christ. And yet the covenant with the Israelites, as the Israelites were given the Ten Commandments, and then as soon as they were given the Ten Commandments, they made a golden calf. And they worshipped the golden calf. They sacrificed to it. And it says they played. So they played, they had orgies in front of the golden calf. In other words, they were given the commandments, but immediately they fell back into the pagan uh, mindset that they were subjected to for 400 years in Egypt. So there's a reason Paul uses the word pedagogy when he talks about the law. Uh, Paul says that the law was a, a, a pedagogy and, and to, until Christ. Well, pedagogy means strict schoolmaster for a child. So what was God doing to this people? 
God was being a strict schoolmaster, and they did this through the second legislation of Mosaic Law, even though they still kept the law of the Ten Commandments, not through, uh, you know, a, a love and a charity, but through rule, fear, and temporal punishment. And God establishes temporal punishment for not following the law because of the hardness of their hearts. And during these times before Christ, a lot of people don't realize this, before Christ, there was something different in the human psyche. There was less of, uh, of, an, uh, of an idea or a sense of charity and love. And you had things like the Code of Hammurabi, which is an eye for an eye. And you had uh, pagans living by, you know, in order to have a society, a strict rule of if somebody doesn't perform a certain task according to the societal norms, you know, a lot of times they're punished or they're killed. And this was just to create a kind of a homeostasis or, 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 or normalcy in things. But it, it was not secured through ethics, through morality, or, you know, or through love of Christ because that wasn't there. So there was something missing up until the time of Christ. Therefore, you hear the prophecies, I will break your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, will, uh, uh, I, will, I will take this heart of flesh, uh, hearts of stone, and make it uh, a, a heart of charity. And you hear this theme over and over again. And this comes into being at the time of Christ and the time of the promise fulfilled the word promise again. At the time of Christ, the spirit entered into the world in a different way. Yet, at the same time, we have this other line going through time, which is the covenant promise. So in this headfast, in this hesed and steadfast love, even though the Jews who swore on their own lives to keep the law broke the law, So they entered the curse. So they were cursed to death. And this is why in Romans 9, Paul explains that if there wasn't another seed, if there wasn't, uh, you know, uh, a a spiritual descendancy, if there wasn't a a promise, then God would have uh, made uh, Israel go in the way of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were under the curse of death. So in the head said steadfast love, we see God using different people through time to keep this promise uh, in a a lineage until first we see uh, Boaz and and Ruth, Boaz being uh, a Jew and Ruth being a Gentile. So their grandchild is David. So we see a precursor to this development of God keeping his promise to Abraham. And we see it through a precursor of not just a church of the Jews, but a church of Gentiles also. And as we go through time from there, we have the diaspora, we have the, Bab- the first Babylon captivity. We have Jews spread throughout the whole land, even losing their language. 
by the time of Jesus, a lot of them didn't even speak uh, of uh, the Jewish uh, language. They spoke Greek. And we have all this confusion going on in the world. And But the prophets always talked about a Savior to come, a Messiah. So what does Matthew do? Matthew shows the begots. And he starts all the way back next to uh, Boaz and Ruth, a Jew and a Gentile. And he shows Christ in the line of the begots from the King, from the King David. And what were they looking for? They were looking for a Messiah. So after the begots, Matthew shows Jesus was among the Galilee people. And by the time Jesus was among the Galilee people, the Galilee area was half Jews and half Gentiles. So Jesus began his, his preaching among both Jews and Gentiles. And as he developed this new way of life, the understanding of the Beatitudes and the understanding of this new law that is going to be written on our hearts, uh, he was doing this at a time before the law was even written on our hearts. In the Beatitudes, he, he talks about something that was completely radical to the world at the time. So what happened with this transformation that came the Holy Spirit into the world is grace given freely, as opposed to the law of Moses, of rule, fear, and temporal punishment. And so as we move on through this story, Matthew is calling Jesus the son, uh, son of God because he's quoting Jesus saying he's a son of God. He's showing that he's the Messiah. At first, he's showing that this son of God, Messiah, is performing all these miracles. And, and who, do we, uh, uh, who does he uh, uh, anger during this time? Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the scribes who were under this law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment and did not have this higher ability of thinking through charity and love yet, yet call them uh, hypocrites and begin to show them how they would even uh, kill him. And he would tempt them and uh, because he is setting up his own death now. So what is the purpose for, the, for, the, for this death? Well, the main purpose is to establish the promise that Abraham fulfilled, to take the place of the Israelites who were, had the curse on them. And Jesus says, no greater man, that, uh, no greater love that a man has than to give up his life for, for another. Well, he is giving up his life not only for the Gentiles, but for the entire Jewish nation who was under the curse. And so you had this curse held in abeyance until this time. And entering the promise fulfilled for both Jews and Gentiles, we look to that word promise that we see quite a few times in Scripture. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promise is for you and for your children. In Romans 9, when Paul's describing the spiritual nation of Israel, not the physical, 
when he says that through Isaac shall his seed become. Shall his seed come. Well, Isaac was a miraculous birth. That birth was not supposed to happen. So it's a spiritual birth. And just as when Peter said, repent and be baptized, that is a spiritual birth. And then in Galatians uh, 3, Paul explains, uh, you are no longer Gentiles or Jews, freemen or slave, male or female, because you've been baptized into Christ Jesus and made heirs to the promise of Abraham. So the cross established the water, blood, and spirit that flows from the rib of the true uh, uh, Adam that he is cleansing his bride with, the true Adam of life, which is also the true tree of life from which the waters flow. And this is what we're, 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 we're going to get to including how God established the true Passover that always needs to be before the Father. You want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I think um, so much. I, I think that the, the biggest thing that you're, that you're pointing out here is uh, the difference between a covenant and a contract, especially in this, in this circumstance, and when Matthew points out basically the three layers of who Jesus is, he is the son of man, he is the son of God, he is the son of David, it is, it is showing us that in this particular um, uh, situation, if you and I were trying to make a business deal, Luke, if you, you were a businessman and I were a businessman, um, and we entered into a business relationship, and I'm just talking about, I'm not talking about you and me personally, I'm just talking about human nature. We entered into a business relationship where I had all the leverage in that relationship, where you had all the need, I had everything that you need, and you basically had nothing that I need. I would be in a position of having the leverage, and I would be in a position of really uh, taking advantage of you, and you would be at the at the mercy of me as to whatever I wanted to charge for whatever product or service it was that you were seeking, and that's the way of the world. And yet, Jesus takes that and turns it completely on his ear, because we have nothing that he needs, and he has everything that we need, and yet. He's the one that bends over backwards in this in this relationship. He's the one who becomes the victim. He's the one who's taken advantage of, allows himself to be taken advantage of for our benefit. And I've heard many people talk about Christianity as a man-made religion. And I just want to be frank because it it can't be a man-made religion because a man would have to be out of his mind. To create a religion <laughs> like this, it, it, it's it's completely God's love for us is completely crazy. It's insane. It's beyond anything that makes any sense because we were in a position where we were fully and completely deserving of the wrath of God. 
There was nothing that we could say in our own defense before the throne of God. And yet he cared about us so much. He loved us so much that he took mercy to extremes that we can't even fathom for love of us, of his own volition, of his own initiative. And this is what Matthew is 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 showing us. And as great as that is, as as astounding as it is, Luke, it only magnifies the malice of the rejection of that mercy. Here Jesus is coming to suffer and die for the people of the covenant uh, kingdom that he that he established and they rejected him the people who he came to save rejected him and the malice of that rejection because of the force of their own pride he proved who he was he proved that his message was truth and yet they rejected him anyway because they couldn't get past the malice of their own heart and, and when they, they look at their the, own covenant Right. So when you look at the chapters that we that we are about to get into, you can see the grief in Jesus' heart as he pronounces the verdict on the city of Jerusalem. And he has to because he can't violate his own justice. So he has to condemn them for their hardness of heart and their sin. And it's just it's the most intense drama that anyone could even imagine the depth of his love and the depth of the malice that rejects that love it's it, it's hard to find words to describe it and they didn't understand that their own destruction was held in abeyance by him taken and, up by him Father, right. forgive them, for they know not what they do. And and what's also astounding, with you, uh, something that we read in chapter 22, let's remind our listeners, they pronounced that destruction on themselves. They pronounced the sentence on themselves. Constantly, Jesus would give them a scenario, a, 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 a parable, and said, well, you know, um, the the master sent uh, workers in, in, into the into the vineyard, um, and you know they were they were beaten, they were thrown out, they were they were cast out. Finally, he sent the son, and they killed him. They beat him, killed him, and threw him out of the city. And then Jesus looked, turns to him, and says, "What do you think the master should do here?" <laughs> and 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 they and they looked at him and said, "Well, he'll he'll bring those wretched people to a wretched death." They they pronounced the sentence on themselves because yeah, you know, you're reminded of what Jesus said: "By your own words will you be exonerated; by your own words will you be condemned." Yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's start with Matthew chapter 23. We're going to go verse 1 through 7. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees are sitting on the 
All things, therefore, whosoever they shall say to, to you, observe and do. But according to their works, do ye not, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy and unsupportable burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But with a finger of their own, they will not move them. And all their works they do for to be seen of men. For they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge their fringes. And they love the first places at feasts and the first chairs in the synagogue and salutations in the marketplace and to be called by men, rabbi. So here Jesus is acknowledging an authority that is not in the Old Testament. But I interrupt you for just a second. Go ahead. Luke's voice broke up just a a little bit when he read verse 2. So it's important that you know that what he said is, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on the chair of Moses. So that's important to, uh, to, know, to know that missing line. Okay. Yeah. So we, must keep in, we must keep in mind that this is before Pentecost and before the authority was passed over to the church, which we have shown on numerous occasions to be the reestablished kingdom of David. But for those who are just beginning to hear our presentation, I'll do a quick review on this and uh, showing this development, the authority. Uh, Jeremiah prophecy that there would be, always be a man to sit on the earthly throne of David. Daniel prophecy, the fifth kingdom that would never be destroyed, not made by hands. This is our sacramental kingdom, the body of Christ. In Isaiah 22, we see the structure of this kingdom in type, where when the king goes away, the supreme ambassador or vicar of the king holds the power of the king in the symbol of the keys of binding and loosing. Uh, this included authoritative uh, interpretation of the Torah, which was the law of the Jewish nation. So it was binding and loosing the entire law of the, of the Jewish nation. So the supreme ambassador even wore the king's robes, symbolizing how we were to see him as a having the dignity from the king. The keys also showed dynastic succession because they are present four centuries after David uh, uh, was the first king uh, establishing the Davidic line. So in Isaiah 22:21, Eliakim is called a father to God's people. From the word father, we get Papa, Pope. Matthew showed us the, the begets from just before David, showing us how this kingdom is reestablished in Christ. And at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, Peter uses the power of ex cathedra and the keys to separate the church from 1,300 years of Mosaic law uh, when he decreed that we are all saved by grace, not the law of Moses. Uh, after the first magisterium of the Catholic Church heard Peter's decree, uh, you know, they did not say this is blasphemy, uh, which it would have been if he, Peter didn't have the authority. And the punishment for blasphemy was actually death. Uh, the scripture says they held their peace. In other words, they accepted what Peter said. They accept the decree. So as soon as this happened, James quoted the prophet Amos, explaining that the kingdom of David had been reestablished in the church for both Jews and Gentiles. So when Jesus says, do as they say, for they sit on the chair of Moses, we already showed a transfer of power in the new covenant. So he was acknowledging the authority that would soon be transferred to the Catholic Church. 
But, of course, the Pharisees were sophists and hypocrites looking to lord over others with their authority, not for the betterment of the souls of the people, but for power. So Jesus basically said, do as they say, but not as they do. So Jesus is telling us that we should respect the priesthood, even though the priesthood will always be attacked by Satan, who will always plant weeds in the wheat in the kingdom of heaven. There will always be good saintly leaders and weeds in the wheat. Remember that Paul said, obey your prelates who have the rule over you for their watch over your souls. So <clears throat> we apply reason to scripture. Catholics do this a lot. <laughs> so these prelates are the authority of the universal church, the reestablished kingdom of David, both Jews and Gentiles, in the one church established by God at Pentecost. All others are established by man. So uh, there's, there's, there's no other Christians uh, before Catholicism. So Paul would never have said, obey the leaders of the Lutheran church, the Anglican church, the Pentecostal, fundamentalist pastors. This would have been clear heresy to Paul, but time and manipulation of history and creation of man-made doctrines and faith alone and scripture alone as a foundation for entropy and for the purpose of separation from the original church confuses the issue for good people who do not look closely at the spiritual battle. And I would say what brings you closer to the Eucharist is from God. What pushes you away cannot be. It will be pushing you away from Christ. Right. <clears throat> Look, our Protestant uh, friends misuse this chapter probably as much as any chapter in the whole Bible to, to push their polemics. And they misuse it because they cherry-pick verses while they ignore the verses that give us the context. And it's important to observe that context because it says the opposite of what they actually preach. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus is upholding an earthly authority that we must obey, even if the members of that authority don't practice what they preach. And in the coming chapters, we'll see that God does not ever eliminate this authority. He changes who holds it, but he does not eliminate the, the idea of an authoritative, uh, a, a central authority on earth that we must obey. Now, Protestantism as an ideology ends right here because this authority, this same authority must exist today. Now, likewise, Jesus didn't condemn marketplaces or seats in synagogues or fringes or phylacteries or the title of rabbi or teacher or doing the works of religion. As you know, and, and a lot of these things are the things that they that are claimed. What Jesus condemns here is the exercise of all of these things for show, to be seen by men. Jesus never ever condemns religion, as some claim, but what he condemns is hypocrisy. And the word hypocrisy, Strong's fifty-two seventy-three, is one who is an actor, a stage player. So a, a pretender, if you will. So if you think of an actor playing a role in a movie, that's what the word hypocrite means. And, and this is what Jesus is saying about these people when he calls them hypocrites. He's saying, you're not truly religious leaders. You play them on TV, so to speak. You're, you're, you're playing the role, but 
it, Jesus could see through them. He could see through their duplicity. So Jesus is not condemning religious people, but he is condemning actors playing religious people in order to draw attention to themselves. I think it's a very important distinction. And he calls them out on sophistry, and we hear sophistry over and over and over again in these debate rooms. Mm-hmm. And sophistry is simply lying to yourself. You know, you're, you're creating a, a fallacious argument, and all you're doing is harming yourself. Right. Uh, interesting. I, I, was, I was debating the other day, and somebody brought up a, a verse and, and tries to use it against the church. It was 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and I'll read it. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which ye also saved, if ye keep the memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, and delivered unto you first all that which also uh, I, re- uh, I received. So they have highlighted, I declare unto you the gospel, and deliver unto you, first of all, which I also receive. But they don't have highlighted, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you. Preached unto you. Not right. written to you, but preached unto you. And Paul stayed with communities, establishing them in bishops, priests, and deacons for up to three years. He established Timothy as a bishop of Ephesus. He established Titus as the Bishop of Crete. And so what I have preached unto you, unless ye believe in vain. In other words, there is a doctrine here. There is a process. And what did he preach? Well, he taught the religion and ritual of the New Covenant, which is Catholic. He taught the Eucharist. He taught baptism. He taught uh, the fear of God. Uh, he uh, uh, said that uh, we should, uh, you know, uh, do priests for the anointing of the sick. The word priest in itself uh, uh, is derives from presbyter, presbyter, which is simply a shortened uh, priest is simply a shortened form of presbyter. Uh, the word elder uh, in the beginning in the Old Testament, you see elder as elder men. But by the time you get into the age of Christ, the Pharisees were considered elders just because they held a position of authority. So the apostles simply used the word elder for those who were consecrating the sacraments uh, through, through the Holy Spirit. And uh, you get the uh, Greek presbyter, and from there, the shortened form of the word priest. So right. when Paul says, you know, to basically hold fast to what I taught you and you can be saved. He's teaching the the entire Catholic doctrine. (laughs) Right. So we're at Matthew 23, 8 through 12. But be not you called rabbi, for one is your master and all you are brethren. Called none your father upon earth, for one is your father who is in heaven. Neither be you called masters, for one is your master. Christ, he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Here we go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And, and how many times the Catholics heard these words from those who try to tear down the priesthood? It's hyperbole, people. <laughs> hyperbole. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. uh, John, you gave great examples of this hyperbole uh, in our last episode, but let's put this foolishness to rest here. Uh, to start from uh, from the early days of Judaism, the word priest was often associated with the word father even. In Judges 18:19, we read, And they said to him, Hold thy peace, and put thy finger on thy mouth, and come with us, that we may have thee for a father and a priest, whether it be better for thee to be a priest in the house of one man or in a tribe and family in Israel. Judges 17:10 reads, And Micah said, Stay with me, and be unto me a father and a priest. And I will give thee every uh, year ten pieces of silver and a double suit of of apparel and thy victuals. Did Jesus contradict himself when he said, Abraham, your father, rejoiced that he might see my day? He saw it and was glad. Abraham was the father, the patriarch of the, you know, of, of the Jewish people under the promise. So did the apostles go against the teaching of Christ? When and and if, I, if I can interject real quick, uh-huh. Jesus, Jesus further said, if Abraham were your father, you would be doing the works of Abraham. So, so he, he actually used their wickedness to point out their, their insincerity of their fatherhood of Abraham being their father. So, this is a, as clear a contradiction of the Protestant understanding of Matthew 23.9 as you could have. Yeah, it says, when you take a cookie cutter to a covenant reality, a Judeo-Catholic book, you'll end up in contradictions all over the place. And most of those contradictions, when, when put into honest, proper exegesis, actually accuses those who try to use them. <laughs> yeah. So... Did the apostles go against the teaching of Christ when they called themselves rabbi, which means teacher? Uh, of course not. Matthew tells us that Jesus, uh, who said, called no man rabbi or teacher, also appointed teachers, as we read in Matthew 28:19. And Jesus coming spoke to them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and earth, going therefore teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them. So, Paul speaks as a teacher who has been sent by the church when he wrote to Timothy, who appointed uh, who he appointed as a, the bishop of Ephesus, and that is why I sent a, as an apostle and teacher of the Gentiles to proclaim the message of faith and truth. I am not lying; I am telling the truth. Uh, and in Second Timothy one eleven, he writes, "Wherein I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles." So you can't use the, you know, one part of this uh, hyperbole and, uh, you know, uh, think that uh, Jesus is, is saying something in a, uh, in a literalist sense and at the same time ignore the fact that over and over again, he also said, don't call anybody teacher. And the apostles are calling, you know, even themselves teachers. Right. So, but we also know from scripture that Jesus performed so many miracles that were not recorded and taught uh, much more than was written down. So these words passed down by the church could have come from Christ. These words I'm about to read. Uh, This is a document called the uh, 
uh, Epistola Apostolorum, and it's dated to about 140 A.D. But as John said, you know, there's things, there's so many things that Jesus said and did, you know, to fill all the books of the world. So we look at these things, and we we can't say they're you know inspired, but we can say they give us a historical understanding of the early church and what they thought. So we read this. We say unto him, Lord, thou art that saith unto us, call no man your father upon earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven, and your master. Wherefore saith thou now unto us, ye shall be fathers of many children, and servants and masters. He answered and said unto us, according as ye have said, ye have said rightly said. For verily I say unto you, whosoever shall hear you and believe on me, shall receive of you the light of the seal through me, and baptism through me. Ye shall be fathers and servants and masters. But we said unto him, Lord, how may it be that every one of us should be these three? He said unto us, Verily I say unto you, ye shall be called fathers, because with praiseworthy heart and in love ye have revealed unto them the things of the kingdom of heaven. And ye shall be called servants, because they shall receive the baptism of life and the remission of their sins, at my hand through you. So even the early church understood this, uh, the hyperbole. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, who he called hypocrites, and pointed out their sophistry, do not usurp the fatherhood of God. Therefore, as an example to his church, he tells the leaders of our church, he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever shall exalt him shall be humbled. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But right. basically, the Epistola Apostolorum is describing the priests of the church who will be fathers, who will be teachers. Right. And, I mean, it's all summed up in, in the line, he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humble. So, you know, you apply this logically. If your car breaks down, you're going to take it to a master mechanic, Okay. If if you if you if you're sick you're going to go to a doctor. Well, what is a doctor? A doctor is a Latin word for teacher. All right. So, you know, Jesus said, "Don't sit in the first pew." So, should we take all the first pews in our church and rip them out? I mean, we have to apply this logically. What Jesus is saying, Jesus is telling us not to exalt ourselves falsely, and not to exalt others falsely, which is flattery, which is really in essence, a form of self-exaltation by proxy. If I'm flattering somebody, I'm trying to get on their good side out of selfish gain. I'm trying to exalt myself by exalting another person. So this is what Jesus is warning about, warning about keeping things in the proper perspective. Don't put any, anybody on the, on the level of God. Don't raise yourself up higher than others. Don't falsely raise others higher than than they deserve to be. That's what's being talked about here, not about titles. Some people uh, are, are rightly called um, are rightly called father. Some people are rightly called teacher, but they're not to lord it over other people. And uh, uh, in, in like Jesus said. Uh, enjoying the, the the titles in marketplaces and in and, and, and the seats of preference in the in the synagogue. 
That's what this is all about. Yeah, exactly. Humility, humility, humility. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to have, you know, a focus on that humility if you're not under obedience to the faith. Jesus says, uh, be holy for I am holy. It's hard to have the focus on what is holy when you don't have those objects in your mind of what is holy. If you don't have the Eucharist in front of you, you know, to focus on, because we see that as what is holy. When Jesus Jesus is not going to say, be holy for I am holy, then not give us things of a holy nature to focus on. So we see here again, uh, Jesus putting the Pharisees on notice speaking with one of authority and further purposely sealing his own fate, not through doing anything wrong against the law. He kept the law to fulfill all righteousness, but to point out how the Jewish authorities have fallen through the power he had given him. And uh, uh, he goes on and, and, he, and he gives the, the, the woes through Matthew mm-hmm. 23 to 13 to 36. And he's just uh, you know, really putting the icing on the cake here for uh, right. Uh, for what the, what they're going to do to him pretty soon. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men. For you yourselves do not enter in, and those that are going in, you suffer not to enter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour the houses of widows, praying long prayers. For this you shall receive the greatest greater judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you go around about the sea and the land to make one proselyte, and one, and when he is made, you make him the child of hell twofold more than yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, that say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But he that shall swear by the gold of the temple is a debtor. Be foolish and blind, for whether... Is for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold, and whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever shall swear by the gift that is upon the is it is a debtor. Ye foolish and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? He therefore that sweareth by the altar sweareth by it, and by all things that are upon it. And whosoever swear uh, by the temple sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth in it. And he that sweareth by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you tithe mint and anise and cumin and have left the weightier things of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. These things you ought to have done and not to leave those undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Mm. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you make clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but within you are full of rapine and uncleanness. Thou blind Pharisees, first make clean the inside of the cup and the dish, that thou outest may become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you are like to whited sepulchers, which outwardly appear to men beautiful, but within are full of uh, dead men's bones and all filthiness. You also outwardly indeed appear to men just, but uh, inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. 
Woe to you, scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites that built the sepulchres of the prophets and adorned the monuments of the just, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of them that killed the prophets. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, generation of vipers, how will you flee from the judgment of hell? Therefore, behold, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will put to death and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may come all the just blood that hath been shed upon the earth, from the blood of Abel the just, even unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachus, who you killed between the temple and the altar. Amen, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. very tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when Jesus said, I send you, uh, I, I send you to you prophets and wise men and scribes, the Pharisees must have been shocked. The same man who was being called the Messiah by the masses of people, who was witness feeding thousands with nothing, who healed the sick and made the blind see, who bested every one of their arguments, said, I, I sent you the prophets. I call you out on your evil nature. I even call you out in your soul and your plots against me. I condemn you for what you are about to do. And I will do and will do to my church in the future. You'll put them to death and crucify, and some you will scourge in the synagogue. The Pharisees fornicated with Babylon, Rome, as the whore of Babylon. You see, uh, Babylon is in the killing of Christ and, and many Catholics. Uh, I must also emphasize that uh, I'm only referring to those who are involved in the persecution of the church. In the early days of martyrdom, the Jews are our ancestors, and through them as God's people of the Old Covenant gave us the images of the effects of the sacraments, even. The types show us even how the sacraments affect the soul, and the Jews of today had no involvement in what occurred in the first century. To go over a few of these woes, we're going to turn to Haddock's uh, for a minute here. Verse 13. You shut the kingdom of heaven. This is here taken for eternal happiness, which can be obtained only by faith in Christ, since he calls himself the gate. St. John, chapter 10, now the Pharisees, by refusing to believe in him and conspiring against him, deterred those who would otherwise have believed in Christ from professing his name and following his doctrines, and thus shut the gate of heaven against them. In all these reprehensions, it is to be noted for the honor of the priesthood. Jesus Christ never reprehendeth priests by that name. Uh, concerning the devouring of the houses of the widows, Haddock responds, Here our blessed Savior uh, severely reprehends the hypocrisy and other vices of the scribes and Pharisees. A little before his death to make them enter into themselves and to hinder them from seducing others. The Pharisees, by every means in their power, endeavored to persuade the widows of the poor to make vows or offerings for the temple, by which they themselves became rich, 
and thus they devoured the houses of widows. Uh, whoever is a perpetrator of evil deserves heavy chastisement, but the man who commits wickedness under the cloak of religion is deserving of still more severe punishment. Right. Origen says the, the same is said of fasting, alms, and prayer. Matthew 6, as above, our, our Lord had inculcated eight beatitudes. So here he denounces eight woes are threats of impending judgment to the scribes and Pharisees for their vile hypocrisy. Uh, it talks about calling on the Pharisees uh, blind guides. Haddock says avarice seems to have been the chief motive of the Pharisees in teaching this doctrine, since they taught that those who swore by the temple were guilty of no sin, nor under any obligation at all, whereas they who swore by the gold of the temple were bound to pay a certain sum of money to the priests by which they themselves were enriched. So whoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing to understand this obscure place we may take notice that a good part of what was offered on the altar and given to the treasury of the temple fell to the priests. And therefore, it was not their interest to have such promises or oaths dispensed with. This made them teach the people that if one had made a promissory oath or vow to give their money or goods to the temple or to the altar itself, as it is said in verse 18, such oaths or promises were not obligatory or might easily be dispensed with. But if anyone had sworn or vowed to give anything to the treasury of the temple or join it to the offering to be made on the altar, then such oaths and promises which turned to their profit were by all means to be kept. Uh, they're just making money on the side. So Jerome expounds of oaths in common discourse as if they taught the people that when anyone swore by the temple or the altar, it was not to consider as to swear by the gold in the temple or by the offering they're made, for in the latter case, were to satisfaction according to the judgment of the Jewish priests and to correct their covetous uh, proceedings. Christ tells them that the temple and the altar were greater than the gold and the offering. So verse 1921 reads, be foolish and blind, for whether is greater, the gift of the altar that sanctifieth the gift. He therefore that sweareth by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things are upon it. And whoever shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth. So they're basically setting up, you know, just uh, a way to pay for their religion here. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> what he meant by sanctifieth, uh, Haddock says, the altar is sanctified by our Lord's body thereon. Uh, a person named uh, Theof, uh, Theoflacus, uh, the close follower of St. Chrysostom, writeth uh, thus upon this text. In the old law, Christ will not allow the gift to be greater than the altar. But with us, the altar is sanctified by the gift. For the bread of the divine grace is converted into our Lord's body, and therefore the altar is sanctified. And verse 21, by him that dwelleth in it, we see that swearing by creatures as by the gospel and by the saints is all referred to the honor of God, whose gospel it is, whose saints they are. And verse 25, woe to you, 
Jesus Christ here condemns in forcible language the principal vices of the Pharisees uh, by way of their hypocrisy, false devotion, boundless ambition, insatiable avarice, false zeal, and ignorance in deciding upon cases of conscience. Uh, St. Luke presents our, our Savior saying this to the Pharisees at dinner so that Christ may uh, must either have repeated these different times. St. Matthew, according to custom, must have added them to other words of our Savior, which spoken to another occasion has some connection with the same subject. In vain do you, Pharisees, boast of your external sanctity. Do not imagine that fornication, adultery, and other actions are the only sins to be attended to, and that pride, avarice, anger, and other spiritual sins are of no uh, moment. Uh, This also goes against the the faith alone again. So he who made the body, and it is of equal consequence that both be kept clean and free from sin. So by the similitude of the whited sepulchers, as also that of building the sepulchers of the prophets, he shows that they did all their actions purposefully to be seen by men, and that this was their only motive in all they did. So like Ezekiel's uh, bitter roll, we have here a dreadful list of woes, like as many thunderbolts leveled against hypocrisy, avarice, ambition, uh, and also bitter zeal. We should be careful not to suffer such rank weeds to grow up in our soil to the ruin of all that's good. Verse 26, Haddock says, Thou blind Pharisee, the vices of the scribes and the Pharisees are not unfriendly to be found in Christians. The genuine character of the pharisaical and hypocritical spirit are to be punctiliously uh, exact in trifles to be fond of distinction and esteem, to be content with external piety, to enter a, a high opinion of yourself and be impatient of reproof, to be harsh to others and ready to impose on them what we do not observe ourselves. Sins abundantly sufficient to rob us of every good, quite desolate, not less so than the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So <clears throat> when he refers to white and sepulchers, Haddock says the Jews, lest they should be defiled, touching the sepulchers, whiten them on the outside in order to distinguish them. But this exterior whiteness covering interior corruption was a genuine picture of the pharisaical character. <laughs> but these men, says uh, St. Gregory, can have no excuse before the severe judgment at the last day. For whilst they show to the view of mankind so beautiful an appearance of virtue by their very hypocrisy, they demonstrate that they are not ignorant how to live well, how to live moral. Uh, They know how. Uh, Tell me, you hypocrite, what pleasure there is in wickedness. Why do you wish to be what you wish to appear? What what, What it is beautiful to appear is beyond a doubt more beautiful to be. So they right. knew what they were doing and they, because right. they even tried to fake uh, the appearance of being something they were not as somebody right. who was all good. pretense, right. <laughs> so be there for what you appear or appear what you really are, says St. Christodel. 
and verse 38, Jesus Christ so often and so boldly condemns the Pharisees because he reads their hearts and intentions. But we who can only judge of overt actions, who cannot dive into the secrets of the heart, must never presume to call men's exterior good actions hypocrisy, but judge according to, uh, according as we see it on them. Right. So, so, Luke, I want to focus on three verses here in particular that a lot of the uh, futurist meet, uh, myth. So let me repeat them. Uh, verses 34 to 36. Therefore, behold, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will put to death and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may come all the just blood that has been shed upon the earth, from the blood of Abel the just, even to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechias, who you killed between the temple and the altar. Amen, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now, let me read to you from the book of Revelation, chapter 18, verse 24. And this is speaking about the whore of Babylon, which you referenced just a minute ago. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is saying exactly what Jesus just said here. So what we're seeing here clearly is Jesus' condemnation. Yeah, this is condemnation of Jerusalem. In our last episode, we actually heard the scribes and Pharisees pronounce the judgment on themselves. And it bears repeating from chapter 21. Here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and lent it out to tenants and went to another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to him, This one is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard returns, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who given them the fruit in due season. <laughs> Luke, <laughs> they just announced their own condemnation. This is exactly, exactly what Jesus is going to do. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. Uh, the Greek word, geneha, uh, from which ge- uh, which we get generation, makes it clear that this will happen within 40 years. And indeed, it does. So this is all pointing towards the fact that, hey, your time is up. And there's a lot of allegorical imagery in, in the book of Revelation about the stars and the sun falling from the sky and and, and and it's all imagery indicating that, hey, time's up. You blew it. You had your shot. Time's up. And and that's what this is all pointing to. And this is what we all see fulfilled 
in chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. And um, and, 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 and now you're about to, well, what I was going to say is both, you're just about to, go ahead, I'm sorry. And we both agree that uh, the book of Revelations, it's, it's highly probable it was written before the destruction of the temple. When you have phrases like come out of her and you have all the Christians leaving Jerusalem for Pella shortly before the siege. Yeah. Well, if anyone needs any evidence that it's written before uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem, take the uh, the kings. Five have fallen. Uh, one is to come, and when he comes, he will remain uh, only a short time. One is, and one is to come, and he will remain only a short time. Well, okay, let's think about that logically. Five have fallen. Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, Caligula, and Nero. One is Galba, and he will reign only a short time. Galba only reigned about three months. And then the next one will come, and he will reign for only a short time. Well, that was Othos, and Othos reigned only about three months. You're talking about 19, uh, 1968. Boy, I just, <laughs> to, I just moved to the Beatles, didn't I? Um, you're talking about 68. The year 68, the reign of the four, that was the year of the four emperors. And it's the only year that there was four emperors. Was the only year in which the book of Revelation could could have been written. So the other thing that I was about to say is that you're about to really, the next few verses that you're about to read, this is where Jesus just lays down the law. And this is where he just makes it very, very clear what's coming. Yep. So in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killeth the prophets and stoneth them, that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered together the, thy children, as the hen doth gather her chickens under the, her wings, and thou wouldest not. Behold, your house shall be left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> and again, here Jesus speaking with the authority of God right in front of him. He is speaking as the God who made the covenants with Israel. How often would I have gathered together thy children as the hen gathers her chicken under her wings? He speaks as their protector through time. He then passes judgment on the house of Israel. So he is telling them, I have given you every chance. I have come even in the flesh, fulfilling the prophet's stories. I have performed uncountable miracles before you, and you chose not to listen nor believe. For our Protestant brothers and sisters, the same God called bread his body and performed incredible miracles, including sustaining his church for 2,000 years. And up to this point, you have chosen not to believe. Many Catholic saints through the power of Christ even raised people from the dead. You even believe the Pharisees' words over God when he gave his priests the power to forgive sins through him. Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit who sends you forgive or forgiven. The Pharisees said, only God can forgive sins. So you're following the same sophistry Jesus admonished 
the Pharisees for? All of those woes came to the people who said only God can forgive sins. For verse 38 and 39, let's return to Haddock's. Behold your house. This house shall be deprived of the protection of the God of heaven. He it, it was that had hitherto preserved them, and he also would inflict upon them those very severe judgments they so uh, much dreaded. And verse 39, till you say, blessed is he that cometh, hereafter you shall own me for your Messiah and the world's Redeemer, at least at the day of judgment. The time here foretold when they should say, blessed is he that cometh in the Lord, is the day of general judgment, when our, our Savior says, henceforth, we must understand it of all that time, which intervened between the time of his speaking and his passion. St. Chrysostom says, it may also be understood by the Jews who are to be converted to the faith of Jesus Christ toward the end of the world. But we must remember, uh, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers labor in vain. For our Protestant brothers and sisters, as we, as we end this chapter, I want you to think about the authority God established and the lack of reasoning Protestants has to have in his process of separation from the Catholic Church. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. It would not be reasonable to think that when Paul wrote Obey Your Prelates, he'd be referring to any leaders of any church. I, I need to emphasize this. He would have called it heresy to obey any prelates of any church that was not the one church established by God infused with the sacramental life of the body of Christ, Pentecost. The chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the reestablished kingdom of David as the kingdom of heaven we are born again into through baptism. It is not reasonable to think that you become a member of the chosen people just uh, you know, uh, 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 through faith. Uh, it, it, is, it is not reasonable to think that you, sh you would think that becoming a member of the royal priesthood, that in the new covenant, you would not be obligated to participate in priestly acts with the ordained. You're being a called a member of the royal priesthood because there's acts of a priest in the new covenant you're called to. And of course, Paul says, obey your prelates to be subject to them, for they watch as being to render an account of your souls, that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for this is not expedient for you. This is the this is the princes of the church. This is the bishop of the Catholic Church that Paul is telling you to obey. And prelate, uh, and the etymology of the word, ecclesiastic of high rank, bishop or pope, superior of a religious house, from old French prelate, modern French uh, prelate, uh, and directly from medieval Latin, prelatus, clergyman of high rank. Paul would have called it heresy to call a church a church that did not have ordained priests inside the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. Paul writing to Titus, the bishop of Crete, says, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and should ordain priests in every city as I have appointed thee. To Timothy, the bishop of Ephesus, he writes, Let the priests that rule well be esteemed worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And James writes, is anyone sick among you? Let him bring in the priests of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick man and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he be in sin, his sins shall be forgiven. How? Through the priest as an intermediator of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the word study for the word elder. We started to discuss this, but I want to go into a little more detail here for to present evidence. You know me, I retired as a lieutenant. You know, I like to go by the preponderance of the evidence. And uh, there's just so much evidence, you know, so why not put it out there? So uh, elders, uh, the word presbyter, an elder, elderly man, or presbyter, the word is used 66 times in the New Testament. It has a primary background in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition where elders, uh, zequinim, referred to the tribal leader of Israel appointed by Moses. See, this is Exodus 24.1. See it in Numbers 11.16. And to the members of the city judicial council in Joshua 24. By the first century, it was the collective name for Pharisaic teachers. We see it in Matthew 15.2. For a group within the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26.3. And for the senior officials of a Jewish synagogue. Now, this notion of ruling the religious elders carried over into a Christian tradition it was applied to its own appointed leaders. You see that in Acts 14, 15, 20, 21, uh, an elder or presbyter uh, thus began to refer to an ordained shepherd of the church who preached the gospel and ministered in the sacraments. And we see this in 1 Timothy 5, 17, Titus 1, 5, and uh, you go on and on with uh, examples of this. So the English word priest is derived from this, this Greek term. And Ignatius of Antioch, a uh, disciple of John the Apostle, writing to his epistle to the Tralians, he writes, In like manner, let everyone respect the deacons as they would respect Jesus Christ, and just as they respect the bishops as a type of the Father, and the presbyters as the council of God and college of the apostles. Without these, it cannot be called a church. I am confident that you accept this, for I have received the exemplar of your love and have it with me in the person of your bishop. This very demeanor is a great lesson, and his meekness is his strength. I believe that even the godless do respect him. So a disciple of John the Apostle just told you, you don't even have a church unless you have bishops and presbyters. You know, of basically of apostolic succession of that church, the Council of God. You know, a few years ago, um, Bishop, uh, I mean, uh, Bishop, uh, Pope uh, Benedict XVI caused a stir when he basically said the same thing, that Protestants don't have churches, that they have faith communities. Uh, and, and he was basically saying the same, same thing. He wasn't being disrespectful, but he was basically saying that that. Seriously, you don't you don't have a you don't you don't have a church, you don't have a priesthood, you don't have the the the, the structure that makes a church a church. Uh, Luke, you and I have used the term cognitive dissonance here many times, and and I think it rings <laughs> true here. Many of our Protestant uh, friends uphold two doctrines at the same time, and and the first doctrine is that Jesus abolished religion. 
They say, oh, what Jesus abolished religion when the veil in the temple was torn in two. And yet they claim this dual covenant garbage where the Jews are still the chosen people. At a, you know, from a covenantal standpoint. Well, this is crazy. You, you can't have it both ways. You either... Either the, the, the Jewish religion is over or it's not. And if it's not over, then it's an authoritative uh, faith. Because the Jewish religion, this idea of a, of a Jewish faith without authority, without a sacrifice, without a temple, without a priesthood, is a phantom of your imagination. So they reject the Judaism of the Bible, which had an authority and a sacrifice, and they embrace rabbinic judaism which is a, a complete fabrication is totally unbiblical so they embrace this new invented religion that has no basis in scripture and yet they reject the catholic church that is deeply based in scripture it's just it's cognitive dissonance it's it's a walking contradiction yeah uh, uh. You basically have to ignore the, the entire early history of Christianity in, in, or, in order to do this. I right. mean, it, it, would just, it would just be so crazy to think, and, and this is how far you would have to go. Let's say the apostles taught their disciples the faith, and then the disciples who were spread out through you know, the known world got together, and they created a different faith. They created a faith of, of we're saved through transforming grace, a faith with bishop, priests, and deacons, a faith with sa- a sacramental nature, a faith devotion to Mary as, as the true Ark of the Covenant and the true Eve, mother of all the living. And they spread this faith, and they taught this faith, uh, starting, they had to have started it when some of the apostles were still alive uh, to create such an error and to spread this error. And they spread this error, and then they died martyrs for this error. That's how far you would have to go to separate your mind from historical Christianity. Right. Right. So... <laughs> So basically, you have to believe that Jesus couldn't keep the promises that he made when he said, I'll protect the church from error, and I will be with you always, and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, you know, somebody asked me a question years ago. They, they, they asked me, they said, hypothetically, what would you do if I could prove to you that the Catholic Church, that the claims of the Catholic Church were false? I said I'd have to become an atheist, and and he said, "What do you mean? You know, <laughs> why? Why? Well, that's great. If the Catholic Church is not true, if the Catholic Church falls, then all of Christianity falls with it, because if Jesus either was able to keep the promises that he made and the church that he established, or he couldn't." And if, if you're going to say that, well, Jesus couldn't keep his promises, therefore we had to create this other church over here, 
well, then why would you call that a Christian church? Or, or why would you, under what pretense would you say that I would believe that? If, if, Jesus, if the first version of Christianity wasn't true, why would I believe the second version? It, it's just it's an argument that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. I mean, you, you can't go past Catholicism. There's nothing there but Judaism. Right. <laughs> so we're starting uh, Matthew chapter 24. I'll read verses 1 and 2. And Jesus being come out of the temple went away, and his dis- disciples came to show him the building of the temple and said to them, do you see all these things? Amen, I say to you, there shall not be left here a stone upon a stone that shall not be destroyed. Now, Jesus came out of the temple and headed toward Mount Olivet, where he was accustomed to spending his nights. The apostles did not want Jesus to destroy the place, so they, they thought that if he, they could show Jesus how great the architecture was uh, of the building, uh, of the temple, then they might persuade him not to destroy them, uh, uh, the temple. So, message, but also to understand that the anger of God was not going to be appeased by creations of man. And Paul writing to the Hebrews before the destruction of the temple appears to be alluding to the, this coming destruction when he wrote, for finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the day shall come, saith the Lord, and I will perfect unto the house of Israel and unto the house of Judah a new testament, not according to the testament of their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued the testament. This is because you know the curse they took on the curse and they fell right away. And I regarded them not saith the Lord. For this is the testament which I will make to the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will give laws into their mind, and in their heart will I write them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, No, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. Because I will be merciful to their iniquities, and their sins I will remember no more. Now in saying a new, he hath made the former old, and that which decayeth and groweth old is near its end. <clears throat> of course, Jesus comes to the house of Judah, and Paul in Galatians writes, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, yet a man's testament, if it be confirmed, no man despiseth nor addeth to it. To Abraham are the promises made, and to his seed he saith not, to his seeds as of many but as of one and to thy seed which is Christ and of course he tells us how we enter the spiritual uh, spiritual how we enter spiritually the promise of Abraham fulfilled symbolized through the spiritual tribe of, of Judah from which uh, Christ came and when he says for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus for as many of you have been baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you're the seed of Abraham, heirs according to 
the promise. There's that word promise again. Mm-hmm. Christ fulfilling the promise through a universal baptism of both Jews and Greek or Jews and Gentiles, promising, fulfilling the hesed, the steadfast love to Abraham, making his descendants as numerous as the stars through the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Just uh, one thing I wanted to point out here. Um, when when we get into this argument where you, I'm sure you've gotten in the, in the Petros Petra argument with the uh, Protestants about uh, Peter being the rock. Um, and, and they like to say that Petros means little stone, that Petra means huge foundational stone for building, but Petros means little stone. Well, they're wrong. The Greek word for little stone is lethos, and that's the word that's used here when Jesus says not one stone will be left upon another. The word lethos is used. So Jesus is basically saying not one pebble will be left upon another. Uh, so the word is lethos, and, and in Aramaic, um, the, the word is uh, the word is um, enva. The word for little stone is enva, whereas the word word for huge foundational stone is kephos, which uh, is also used referring to Peter. So just a little sidebar there. That's part of that cookie cutter thing, where they have to right. isolate those things, because right. James at the Council of Jerusalem uh, basically saw in Peter's declaration the reestablished kingdom of David, he quoted Amos, the prophecy being fulfilled in the church. So Jesus would never have given Peter the keys of binding and loosening of the kingdom if he wasn't reestablishing the church and making Peter the the supreme ambassador. Therefore, when Jesus said, you're uh, Simon for now and you have called rock, it was already predestined that he would be that ambassador of Jesus's church, Jesus, I will, I will build my church. He did, and James of the Council of Jerusalem saw right there the prophecy fulfilled in the church. Right. So we're at Matthew twenty-four thirty-one. And when he was sitting on Olivet, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us when shall these things be." And what should be the sign of thy coming and the consummation of the world? And Jesus answering said to them, Take heed that no man seduce you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will seduce many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye not be troubled, for these things must come. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be pestilence and famines and earthquakes in places. Now, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then shall thy, uh, they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall put you to death, and you shall be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then shall many be scandalized and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall seduce many. And because of iniquity, charity is But he that shall preserve to the end he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into the whole world for a testimony to all nations, and then shall the the consummation come. When, therefore, you shall see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, 
he that writeth let then they that are in Judea let them flee to the mountains, and he that is on the housetop let him not come down to take anything out of his house, and he that is in the field let him not go back to take his coat, and woe to them that are with child and that give suck in those days, but pray that your flight be not in the winter or on the Sabbath, then great tribulation such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, neither shall be. And unless those days be shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, not, or there do not believe him. For there shall rise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told it to you beforehand. If there shall be, behold, he is in the desert. Go ye not out. Behold, he is in the closets. Believe it not. For as lightning cometh even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the body shall be, there shall the eagles also be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation, the sun shall be dark and the moon shall not give her light. The stars shall fall from the heavens. The powers of heavens shall be moved. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with much power and majesty. And he shall send his angels with a trumpet and a great voice. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest parts of the heavens to the utmost bounds of them. Excuse me, I'm going to take a drink here, man. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't think my throat's been clear since I had that uh, cold or whatever it was that we both had earlier. I get it. Yeah. So you're beginning to hear a lot about this pre-tribulation rapture again for Protestants. These verses pretty much contradict that when we read the uh, through to to the end of this, I, I noticed a lot of Protestants ending at the middle of of, of the theme, in, in in the same way they do in Ephesians too, where it says by grace you are saved through faith. They do not continue to the second mention of works that have been prepared by God that we should walk in them, is the in the second mention of works as Paul's saying. So. Right. I mean, the verses in this narrative can be viewed as what happened at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Paul writes to the Colossians saying that the, the faith has been heard throughout the world in his time. So I guess this would refer to their, their world on their continent, but these verses also refer to the end of days. <clears throat> so there would be many false Christs and false prophets included among them should be those who preach a, pre-trib rapture, but in reality, our Adventist religions were all wrong so far. So, But in reality, it would be anyone teaching against the doctrine of faith and morals of the Catholic Church and keeping people from the Eucharist. But notice here that there shall be in uh, then great tribulation, such as have not been for the beginning of the world until now, neither shall be. After this great tribulation is when the elect are gathered. So we all created this mess, and, and we all, we will all go through 
the growing pains into the eternal kingdom revealed. In Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul talks about Christians being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. But in verse 17, Paul says, we who are alive, who are left, the ones who are caught up, or we who are left when evil is eradicated from the world. Uh, Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of man. Again, who is left after the flood? Uh, destroy, after the flood destroys all uh, of the evil uh, through a type of for baptism, actually. So the good guys on the ark, which is symbolic for the church. The end is compared to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When the cities are destroyed, who is left? The good guys. Well, sort of. <laughs> uh, that's right. another story. <laughs> so you want to be left behind so you're caught up in the heavens to beat Jesus in the air and accompany him back to, to a rejuvenated and purified earth as the new Eden. Um, this is when, uh, uh, in 31, he shall send his angels with a trumpet and a great voice, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest parts of the heavens, the utmost bounds of them. Right. Luke, so many people futurize all of these verses, and 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 you're about to show that that's not correct with some of the verses that you're about to get into. So I want to address this in detail just a little bit, and I want to make a distinction. And again, um, I'm going to cite the book of Revelation, chapter 1, which, as we've discussed, was written in 68 A.D. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servant what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us the kingdom, priest to his God and to his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, Even everyone who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Think about what's being said here, Luke. Every eye will see him. Okay? People who have bodies have eyes. Even yep. those who pierced him, those people who were still um, uh, alive who had pierced him, this is referring to something that is imminent. It's written in 68 AD. It's referring to something that is imminent. Did you know that in his writings, uh, the historian Josephus, actually claims that there were multiple eyewitnesses that claimed that when the temple in Jerusalem was being destroyed, they claimed they saw figures running back and forth in the clouds. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I mean, that's multiple, fascinating. Yeah, multiple witnesses claim that, and, and Josephus, the historian, 
recorded it. So it's it's a very important distinction here, and, and you're about to get into it in the verses you're about to read. But there's a distinction in here between Jesus coming in vengeance against Jerusalem and Jesus coming at the end of the age to separate the sheep from the goat and take his own people to him. So it, it's two different things that are being discussed here. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to get into the breakdown of how you understand where the separation of these verses are. So please continue. <laughs> yeah, and uh, for, for the Temple of Jerusalem to be destroyed, that was for the Jews, the, the destruction of their world. There's this, the, the mindset of the Jews at that time was just that. Right. I mean, and it, so. And it needs to be amplified how unthinkable it was. And, yes. and um, in, our, in our Christmas special, we, we, we talked about this. Do you know there were stones that weighed as much as 160,000 pounds that were elevated to a height of 100 feet in the Temple of Jerusalem? Oh, that's astounding. The stones that yeah. the heaviest stone at the base of the foundation of the temple is estimated to be over a million pounds. The doors yeah. of the temple in Jerusalem were 57 feet tall and took six men to open them. You know, I mean, it was just a colossal structure. It's unimaginable how they built something like that with the technology that they had then, and it would be just the thought of it being torn down would be just absolutely unthinkable. As as unthinkable as it was that the Titanic could sink, as unthinkable as it was that the Twin Towers could be knocked down, the destroying of the temple in Jerusalem was far beyond that in, in terms of something that couldn't be comprehended. And it wiped out the whole structure of their faith. Yeah. Everything surrounded yeah. the temple, their entire... Their entire body of faith was just wiped out, and they had nothing after that to, to, to go on. Right. They had to create something new. Right. So at Matthew twenty four thirty two through let's read through thirty nine. And from the fig tree learn a parable. When the branch thereof is now tender and the leaves come forth, you know that summer is nigh. So you also, when you shall see all these things, know ye that it is nigh, even at the doors. Amen, I say to you that this generation shall not pass till all these things have be done, this generation. Heaven and earth shall pass, but my word shall not pass. But of that day and hour no one knoweth, knoweth. No, not the angels alone. And as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of, of before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, even till that day in which Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not till the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, many fathers believe that the sign of the Son of Man could be the cross seen in the heavens. But, of course, these things are, are theories. Will come home in, into the new covenant shortly before the end. Uh, Saint Chrysostom uh, believes this. Uh, he says the Jews looking upon him, whom they had pierced, now coming in the clouds of heaven, with power and exceedingly great glory. 
shall have great lamentations. Bitterly will they weep over their misery and having despised and assaulted him on a cross who ought to have been the object of their veneration and adoration. Uh, regarding the fig tree that Jerome commentary uh, uh, explains, the concentric ring uh, returns to the idea of verse 15. When you see this verse to the time just before the parousia, uh, summer is near. The language of this, the initial proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom, which we saw back in verse uh, 3 2 in the, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Here the Greek could be translated as he is near. So the RSV version, or she, it is near, referred to the kingdom, actually kingdom of God and man are inseparable. One implies the other. Uh, shall not pass away until this is a troublesome verse. So the death and resurrection of Jesus as an anticipated parousia fulfilled part of it as does the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but neither fulfills all these things. The greatest event, the coming of the Son of Man with the kingdom is still to come, as describes in uh, Matthew 5.18. Matthew's answer to this begins in verse 36 and continues into chapter 25 concerning the unknown day and hour and the delay of the parousia, uh, verse 35 says, my word shall not pass away. And Isaiah 48, Jesus' words is like God's word in the Old Testament, abiding in truth and sureness. Right. So verse 34 is the dividing line. And if you understand that, you understand how to take this apart. So only after verse 34 refers to the end times. So if you go back to the beginning, let's down. You see that Jesus, that they ask Jesus three questions. So let's reread it. Verse 3. And when he was sitting on Mount Olivet, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things shall be. Now, that's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's question one. And what shall be the sign of thy coming? That is question two. And then they say, and of the consummation of the world. And that is question three, referring to the end time. So if you read verses four to 34, Jesus is answering question one. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then from verse 37 on, now Jesus is answering the other two questions, and that is what where Luke picks it up right here, starting with verse 37. This is where Jesus is answering the other questions about the coming of the Son of Man and the consummation of the world. So Matthew 24, 37 through 44. And as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Whereas in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, even till that day in which Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not till the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two shall be in the field, one shall be taken and one shall be left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, one shall be left. Watch ye therefore, because you know not the hour of the Lord will, will, will come. But this know ye, 
that if the good men of the house knew at what hour the thief would come, he would certainly watch and would not suffer his house to be broken open. Wherefore be you also ready, because at what hour you know not the Son of Man will come. Now, <clears throat> we've already discussed that you want to be left in order to receive Jesus in the clouds. Uh, two women are grinding at the mill. One is focused on truth and charity, and the other is not. One is watchful and has lived in preparation for our true birth. The other is not. Some of the maids have prepared the oil in their lamps, uh, lived in good works and transforming grace of charity, charity being Christ's demand. The other is not. This applies to our lives in general and the parousia, which, which includes judgment, of course. Uh, no one knows the hour of the day, so our vigilance in how we keep our souls needs to be constant. And Jesus says earlier in Matthew 12, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall render an account for it is in the day of judgment. For by the words thou shalt be justified, and by the words thou shalt be condemned. Not exactly faith alone or once they've always saved, but holy fear here. Right. And we, when we went into this earlier where the Pharisees actually testified against themselves, by their own words, they, they condemned themselves. But you're so right here, Luke. It's, when you read the entire phraseology of, of, of what Jesus said, if, if, if the owner of the house had known when the thief was coming, he wouldn't have allowed his house to be broken into. Jesus is using this in, in a terminology of there's going to be people that are going to be unpleasantly surprised when he returns, uh, and, and those are going to be the ones that are going to be taken away. Uh, judgment will come as a, as a sudden shock to the unprepared. Yep. yep. Definitely not prepared. <laughs> right. <laughs> So we're at Matthew 24, we'll read 45 through 51. Who thinkest thou is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath appointed over his family to give them meat in season? Blessed is that servant whom when his Lord shall come, he shall find so doing. Amen, I say to you, he shall place him over all his goods. But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord is long a coming, and shall begin to strike his fellow servant, and shall eat and drink uh, with drunkards. The Lord, that servant, shall come in a day he hopeth not, and at an hour that he knoweth not. And he shall separate him and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. After everything we have discussed, uh, this one should simply put the icing on the cake. Uh, wise and faithful servant are vigilant uh, and prepared. The evil servant takes his mind off of the prize. A faithful servant cannot believe in faith alone or once they've always saved. These are diabolical deceptions. Uh, I don't say these things to ridicule. I say them because, you know, the the most charitable thing you could do is to bring somebody from error to truth. And I know I'm yeah. kind of directing that I do it. But the evil servant erred through a lack of charity, which, as we we have discussed before, is is being Christ's man. That's a true understanding of charity. So 
we'll finish the chapter with, with Paul's words on charity. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And if I should have prophecy and should know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I should, ha- should have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And if I should distribute all my goods to feed the poor, and if I should deliver my body to be burned and have no charity, it profits me nothing. Charity is patience, is kind. Charity envieth not, dealeth not perversely, is not puffed up, is not ambitious, seeketh not her own, is not provoked to anger, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, this is my body, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never falleth away, whether prophecy shall be made void, or tongue shall cease, or knowledge shall be destroyed. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. He was under the pedagogy, the strict schoolmaster for the child, the rule mm-hmm. of fear and temporal punishment. But when I became a man, I put away the things of a child. We see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but when, but then I shall know, even as I am known. And now there remain faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity. Yeah. So two things I want to say here as we as as we wrap this up. Um, a lot of times we focus on these verses as Jesus returning, the master coming. And we're thinking of that as the master of, you know, coming at, you know, at the end time. You know, I've had people that have asked me, uh, do you believe that the second coming, do you believe that you'll, that you will see the second coming in, 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 in your life? And my answer is no, probably not. There's, you know, too many other things that have to happen first, but no, probably not. However, uh, Jesus coming for the world, I don't believe that I will see. Jesus coming for me, <laughs> I will certainly see. And, and, <laughs> and I think that's what's, that's what's being um, missed here. Let me read the two verses that you just said here, these last two verses uh, from, from their previous reading. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day that he hopeth not, and in an hour that he knoweth not, and he shall separate him and appoint his portion with the hypocrite, where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Notice it doesn't say them. He shall separate them. This is a this is a singular thing here. So that that's the the thing that people need to need to understand. It's not always referring to Jesus returning at the end times. It's a lot of this has to be taken in terms of Jesus returning uh, for you. And the other thing is when you read the scripture about the master returning, I want to read the companion exposition of this teaching that comes from Luke's gospel. And this is from Luke chapter 12. Allow me to read this. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise steward 
whom the Lord shall set over his household to give him their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find him so doing. Excuse me. Of a truth I say unto you that he will set him over all that he hath. But if that servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maid servants, and to eat and to be drunk, the Lord of the servant shall come in a day when he expecteth not, in an hour when he knoweth not, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint his portion with the unfaithful. Now this is exactly what Matthew is saying. It's talking about he. He will be cut down and he will be placed with the unfaithful. Here's where it differs. Here's where Luke's gospel differs. And that servant who knew his Lord's will and made not ready, nor did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. And to whoever much is given of him shall much be required, and to to whom that commit much of him, they will ask the more. Luke, this is proof of the doctrine of purgatory right here. You see different layers of punishment here. This is not something that can be reconciled with heaven or hell. Because the person who is going to heaven is not going to get a severe beating or a light beating. The person who is going to hell is certainly not getting a light beating. He's getting a severe beating. So you can only reconcile this with purgatory, with different layers of punishment, uh, depending on the culpability of the person, uh, depending on the malice of the person. And uh, and I'll end there. I just want to say to those of you listening, um, we appreciate you listening. Uh, this will be our last episode of the year, so to speak, of the liturgical year, that is. Uh, because we're about to enter into the uh, into the season of Advent. Uh, uh, for those of you not familiar with the Catholic uh, Church year, the Catholic liturgical year, as 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 it is, um, it's it starts our new year, our new liturgical year starts this coming this coming Sunday, which is the first uh, Sunday of Advent. So. Luke, I want to wish you a uh, happy and a blessed Advent to you and your family. And would you end this with a closing prayer, please? Once again, uh, for the Our Father, both our uh, Catholic and Protestant brothers. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stay, our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. God bless, brother. I'll see you next Monday. God bless you, too.